Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and share the Word of God with you, especially on this Thanksgiving Sunday. And so as we begin this time of sharing and preaching of God's Word, let's start with a prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we'll be going over various scripture passages, but for our reading together, we'll turn to a very short passage, just one verse in Acts chapter 14, verse 17. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, and if you have a pew Bible, you can find it on page 868. Acts chapter 14, verse 17. When you have found it, let's rise in reverence for God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. This is the word of the Lord. Today is Thanksgiving Sunday. Thanksgiving is uniquely a, an American holiday, but one that stretches back even before America was founded. It officially became a national holiday when Abraham Lincoln in 1863 would declare this, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Abraham Lincoln wrote this as a proclamation and declaration in stating at, in the United States a national holiday. And if you heard the words that he said, it was so that we could praise our beneficent Father, so that we could praise God. The timing of the proclamation is significant. The proclamation in 1863 would have meant that it would have been in the middle of the deadly civil war between the North and South states in the U.S. And Lincoln continues on this proclamation, so I'm going to continue to read what he would say in the proclamation. This is what he says, And I recommend to them that while offering up the descriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the Almighty Hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. 
I always imagine what if we had a president now who would speak in a similar fashion as we did Abraham Lincoln. I think perhaps this also needs to be heard in 2022. We as a nation must repent for our national perverseness and disobedience, commend to the tender care of God all those we have murdered, orphaned, and are made to unduly suffer because of our nation's unholy practices, especially regarding sexuality, which we are now all unavoidably entangled in. May we implore the Almighty for His mercies to heal our land and restore it. But this was all. All that was said by Abraham Lincoln was in reference to thanksgiving. And at first glance, we might not understand how this can be correlated to giving thanks. In 1620, the pilgrims first landed and had a brutal year. Of the 102 that initially made the trip on the Mayflower, only 52 survived. So roughly 50% of the people died. If you grew up in the States and you went to school here, you probably heard of Squanto or the Wampanoag tribe that helped the pilgrims survive by teaching them how to plant crop or fish and hunt. When they had their first successful harvest of corn, the pilgrims decided to celebrate on November of 1621. And of those that attended that first Thanksgiving meal, one man, his name was Edward Winslow, and he would write on the first Thanksgiving feast found in his collection of letters in the writings that are named or dubbed Mort's Relation. This is what he wrote. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling so that we might after have a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help besides served the company almost a week at which, at which time amongst other recreations we exercised our arms many of the Indians coming amongst us, and among the rest their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. Apparently this account now is contested in Wikipedia. This is what Wikipedia says about this account. It says, quote, since the late 20th century, the event celebrated as the first Thanksgiving has been debated in the United States. Many American Indians and historians argue against the romanticized story of the Wampanoag celebrating together with the colonists. Some say that there is no documentation of such an event. There appears to be one primary account of the 1621 event written by a person who was present, end quote. It doesn't even bother to mention Winslow's name or the collection of writings where it is from. It just leaves you, this account just leaves you enough room to doubt, if, even though there may be no reason to doubt. So out of the 52 survivors, one of its leaders decides to write an account of the Thanksgiving dinner and the people of the 20th century want to cast doubt on it. 
You have to start to wonder why. Why do we want to cast doubt on Thanksgiving? I also think it's very millennial and Gen Z. I also see, uh, imagine the comments, people saying things like Pixar didn't happen, or if there were 52 people, how come there aren't 52 selfies of the event? Uh, I think about things like that, and I think about, I have a newborn daughter, and I think about the things that I remember most about her, and the pictures, because of our technology today, I don't know if anybody would remember a time even when we couldn't have pictures immediately in, in our persons or at our disposal. Even if you took pictures, it would have taken you a long time to develop. Uh, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s, those pictures would take maybe a week. If you grew up even before that, in the 70s and 60s, those pictures might even take longer. And if you grew up before that, those pictures you might never see. Someone might take a picture, you might never see it. Um, but now you take a picture, it's immediately at your disposal. But even though we have this technology where I can take pictures of my loved ones anytime I want, I was thinking about my newborn and thinking about the times that I really, really enjoy, that are memorable, that I kind of am most entertained by. And those times can be, and they actually are, times where I don't have a picture. Um, my wife and I would laugh about it, so I would change the diaper of my newborn. No one's going to take a picture of that, right? So as I'm changing the diaper, I'm holding her legs and cleaning her, switching the diaper to a clean one. But while I hold her legs together, it's like five, ten seconds. Somehow she manages to reach up and start touching. She touches my smartwatch. And the five, ten seconds that she's touching it, after, after I'm done, she's, she's good to go. I look at my watch and some apps are already deleted. I don't know how she does it, but I have to reinstall these apps. Um, I tried to do a timer once and the timer app wasn't there anymore. So she's a genius. No, no I'm just kidding. Um, so those are things that I particularly enjoy. Uh, those are accounts that I remember and I hold dear. Just small things uh, because they are special. You could technically take a picture, but I don't think most people would think to do that. Edward Winslow had this event and he said, you know what, I think I want to write this down. And now, uh, some centuries later, we want to just discredit that and saying, you know what? It's so romanticized, there's no such thing. Um, and Wikipedia would put that up. You know, needless to say, I think Wikipedia is great, minus the great. But to quote one famous office manager, this is what he said, quote, Wikipedia is the best thing ever. Anyone in the world can write anything they want to about any subject, so you know you are getting the best possible information. End quote. But continue on with the Thanksgiving story. The fowl that's mentioned here, we know now to be turkey. Um, William Bradford would write just 10 years later in his writings of Plymouth Plantation in 1630, which only made sense that it was turkey because that is the game bird that is plentiful in the area around Plymouth. This is also why we customarily now eat turkey on this holiday. I'm not sure why we don't eat venison, though, uh, but this isn't even a molehill I'm willing to fight on. But over the centuries, Americans have celebrated this tradition of Thanksgiving 
when you think about whether it's the first Thanksgiving or the national institution of the holiday by Abraham Lincoln, Thanksgiving, if you think about it, was birthed out of great adversity and struggle. Thanksgiving was birthed out of great adversity and struggle. But then the opposite, when you think about it, where there is plenty and where there is overabundance, we often see ingratitude rather than thanksgiving. This is nothing new over the course of mankind. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, 20, the Lord says this, For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. There's this show. It's called The Simpsons. And it captures this attitude well, I think. There's a scene where they're seated around the dinner table and the father of the family asks his son, Bart, to pray for the meal. And this was Bart's prayer. Dear God, we paid for all this stuff, so thanks for nothing. That's Deuteronomy chapter 31, 20. That's the propensity of a sinful heart. Why do we tend to a heart of ingratitude when we've been given so much? In Deuteronomy chapter 8, just a few chapters before, verse 17, God warned his people, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. In our pride, we say that we have gotten rich by our capabilities. It's my capabilities that made me rich. I got strong by my efforts. I attained this achievement by my own intellect. And this happens when we don't remember what the Lord has done. In verse 18, God continues to say, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. It's when you remember the Lord, you remember that every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's from James 1.17. When you think that you did all this yourself, there is no room for gratitude because your big head fills up every crevice of your heart. And when you have a nation, peoples, communities, families, and individuals that are not grateful, people that are not thankful, those institutions and individuals will invariably crumble. I think the second reason why people aren't thankful is because we think we deserve it. We believe we are entitled to it. 
The first reason may be because in our pride, we think we did everything ourselves. The second reason is because that in our pride, we think we deserve it. And we are seeing the fruits of this kind of attitude today when you see rampant looting, stealing, burning, and more, maybe more subtly, sabotaging your company before you leave because you don't think they pay you enough or you think they took advantage of you. This is almost common. And it may not be so subtle now as young people are lauded when they leave a company and cause a ruckus and put it on their social media accounts. But James also writes about this in his epistle in chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That word passions, that Hebrew word, uh, the Greek word for passions is where we get hedonism. Is that your hedonism or hedonistic passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So I want it becomes I need it becomes I must have it becomes I deserve it. When it gets to the point where you say I deserve it, is where you see Romans 1 come to light, especially verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I'm going to continue on to verse 26 of Romans chapter 1. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable Passions, this word passions is the Greek word pathos, where, where, where we get pathology. That's where you study the origins of disease, how you got this sick. So for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is ultimately what pride does. It makes us into an adulterous people. It promotes friendship with the world rather than with God. The teacher says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. An ungrateful heart is a heart filled with pride. So what are we to do then? Especially since we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. How can I be thankful the verse after Deuteronomy 17 is there to instruct us. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, rather. 
Verse 17, I read, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers at it, as it is this day. So thanksgiving is number one about remembering. I spoke on the sacraments a few weeks ago, and one of the two sacraments we are to faithfully administer as a true church is the sacrament of communion. Another word for communion is the word Eucharist. Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. And communion or Eucharist, in that sacrament we are called to what? We are called to remember Christ says, do this in remembrance of me. To remember is the first step to thanksgiving. Psalm 107, one of the psalms on thanksgiving, starts off with verse 1 saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks. The Lord, he is good. And his love endures forever. The rest of the psalm in Psalm 107 is just recalling what God has done for his people. In a time where when we are all constantly gathered, um, or a time when we are all constantly gathered, that we can give thanks is around this table. But we also recognize that God gives us tables to sit around or gather around. We also ought to give thanks around any table, not just the communion table. Every time we are gathered for a meal, I encourage you, if you are a child of God, to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. In my younger days, pastors and teachers um, would have or would say this thing, which I thought to be a horrible little saying. And the saying was that prayers before a meal should be short. Prayers before a meal should be short. I mean, I get it. Perhaps if you're around starving people that need to eat, you don't want to pray for 20 minutes. But the saying was taken to mean that the shorter the meal prayer, the better. That's what it led to. And I share this because of how prevalent this thinking was, not just in my generation, but in the years continuing on in our church culture. Only a person out of their mind would give a lengthy meal prayer, someone who wants to be hated. You have the food right in front of you. Who's going to pray for five minutes? When I look at the Psalms, and in particular the Psalms on Thanksgiving, whether it's Psalm 107 118 or 136, none of these psalms are short. And I think there's a reason why. Because when you are to remember, you realize it's not about length, but it's about substance. You can have a lengthy or long but shallow prayer. I get that. But you can't have a shallow prayer with true thanksgiving. Heartful thanksgiving will always lead to you remembering the good things God has done for you, the good things God has given you. And I think it's a shame that this idea of meal prayers having to be short has been embedded in our church culture. While there are appropriate links to prayers, every prayer must have substance because 
When you remember, you remember something. When you remember the good things God has done for you, when you remember, you remember ultimately the object of your prayer. And who is the object of our prayer? It's the Almighty. Now there are some, after listening to what I said, that might think, well, what about the length, though? What's a good length? Do I still make it long or short? After this, when we go to our larger groups and the, the prayer for the meal isn't long enough or is, if you feel like it's too short, and you're still hung up on the length, okay? So I'm going to give you a very brief example. If you gave a child a gift, and we have many children here, and if you give a child a gift and this child takes this gift and just walks away without showing any gratitude, maybe mutter something under his breath, I don't know. The teacher or parent standing next to the child will stop this child and correct their behavior. There is no good parent that would stand for their kid walking away without giving proper gratitude. Why? Because it's disrespectful. In a similar vein, when I say it's not about length, it's because it's not about length. It's about the heart. Out of the heart comes substance. When you have a prayer, is there substance to that prayer? Or are you going to just say, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, and everybody goes, ha-ha-ha-ha, so funny, right? Is that really what it is? Because if you would imagine the scenario of a child just walking away, you can imagine the scenario being played out. You would say, come back here, bub, and you say thank you. And the child would say, thank you. And then you would continue to say, well, what are you thankful for? And the child might say, thank you for giving me this gift. And then you might say, all right, give your uncle or auntie a hug now. Short or long has nothing to do with it. It's about sincerity, attitude, and posture. It's about substance. We don't give empty prayers and we don't give empty thanks. And I want you to remember this during your meals. When you say, thank you for this food, is there substance to that statement? And this brings us back to the object of our thanksgiving. It's great that you're thankful. And you know what you're thankful for, but the question is, who are you thankful to? Because every culture has an expression of thanksgiving. I really believe this, that if there is no expression of thanksgiving in a culture, that culture will dissipate, it will disintegrate, it will dissolve. Every culture needs a culture of thanksgiving. But it's not about what you're thankful for, it's about who you are thankful to. Because even in Japanese culture, it's customary and polite to say this phrase, itadakimasu before you eat. It literally means to take or to receive. It's an expression of thanks because you are receiving this food or this gift. But who are you receiving it from though? That's the question that we need to explore. You can say that you are thankful because you received this from your mother, for example. And then you might start to think, who gave these ingredients to my mom? Perhaps it was my dad who worked and was able to pay for it. And then you think even further, who gave him the paycheck, his boss? And it would lead you to, lead you to continue to go up this chain. And any philosopher would call this the first cause. What is the first cause? What's the first cause that ultimately put the food that you have in front of you at your table? 
Now the effects of true thanksgiving will have to be will will be to have the thankful party start to reflect on the characteristics that lead up to the first cause. And this is what I mean. Let's take example of the food at the table. If the food that you're going to eat is especially good and it's tasty, you are especially thankful to the cook. The skill that enabled them to make this food, the sincerity they put in in preparing this food, all a reflection of what? The person's character, the cook's character. Because you love your mom and thankful for her. You're thankful for her because the food isn't just food. The food is more than food. It's a reflection of her character. And that character you would recognize is good. I'm going to go to a little bit, very, very shallow philosophy. I'm not going to go too much. But how do we know what is good, though? How do you know what's good unless there's a standard? Without getting too philosophical, this idea of goodness comes from the standard of perfection. The idea of perfection comes from the perfect. Otherwise, we wouldn't even have thought of what perfection is. This is what philosophers have been studying and thinking about. How do you know what is perfect? How do you know that there's this idea of perfection because it comes from the perfect? Without a first cause, you don't have any effects, so the effects lead back to the first cause. So even you thinking that there's something good leads to the perfect, which leads to the one that is perfect, which leads to the first cause. This is where Descartes went from cogito ergo sum to cogito ergo Deus est, which means I think, therefore I am. And Descartes went from I think, therefore I am to I think, therefore God is. You see, good things point to a perfect standard, pointing to the perfect cause, ultimately pointing to God. The fact that we can experience these things that are good is because God is good. It's not just about the food at the dinner table. It's everything. Everything points to the goodness of God. People always talk about even if gravitational force was off by a fraction, we'd be hurtling into the nothingness of space right now. People have talked about this um, at length, I think. With Einsteinian physics, we don't say gravity is a force now. Rather, it's a general relative energy, right? It's telling space-time how to bend and that the energy is telling space-time how to bend, and that bending is what moves the energy. So I think a popular example is when someone stretches out like a blanket and puts like marbles, and it makes indents in the blanket, and the heavier the ball. So if you put a bowling ball, see all these marbles start circling down into the bowling ball. So that's gravitation, or gra what we see as gravitational force. It's just really space-time bending because of energy. Anyway, what makes everything... So what the question is whether you're going with Newtonian physics or Einsteinian physics or whatever it is, the question is, the blanket has to be consistent in this universe. The blanket has to be consistent, otherwise no math equation works. No physics is possible. What makes everything so consistent in the universe that we are ultimately able, all the way down from Einsteinian physics, all the way down to us, able, being able to have a meal at the dinner table? And the answer is God. 
He is perfection and he is powerful enough to hold the fabric of the universe together all the way down to the meal that is right in front of us. God created the universe by the power of his word, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It was his word that exploded into the stars and the galaxies that we see today and the world that we live in. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him not anything that was made was made. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, God created the world. He created man, male and female. He created them. He placed them in the garden. They were to serve him and live with the fullness of joy. But man rebelled against God when the serpent deceived the woman, and they took from the fruit of the forbidden tree and ate it. You see, it's because God created the universe in this relationship. Everything is relative to one another, perhaps. But in a sense, everything has a relationship with one another. God created the universe in a certain order that would not only maintain that relationship, but those, he, he made it so that those relationships would thrive. But man's rebellion against God caused sin to enter the world, and that's when we started to see decay and death. This is innate in our souls because we initially feel shame for our wrongdoings. That shame means it's pointing to the ultimate death. But God didn't leave humanity on its inevitable, inevitable path to eternal destruction. He promises a savior, someone that would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3.15. He gave everyone the world, everyone in the world, this witness, and this is what we read this morning, Paul and Barnabas would also emphasize this in Lystra when they would say in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Every time I think about this verse, Sometimes you would read through Acts and you go to chapter 14. The people in Lystra tried to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they're like, we're not gods. We're not Zeus. We're not Hermes. We're not any of these gods that you think we are. They would tear their clothes. Do not worship us because they did something amazing. The people there wanted to worship them. But this is what they would say. And this says after that, he, even after he said that, uh, Paul would say that they could barely stop or scarcely stop them from giving sacrifices to them. And then when I initially read that, I read verse 17, and I thought, wow, that was kind of like a cutoff from giving the gospel point, right? He didn't, have, he didn't mention Jesus Christ in his gospel presentation. But if you think about it, and I continue to think about verse 17, he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And the more I think about this and meditate on this verse, the more I start to understand that God has shown the world a standard of perfection. He places eternity in the hearts of every person. And in Romans 1.19, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You can deny God. You can be angry at God. But that doesn't mean he doesn't exist. You might not understand something. 
But that doesn't mean that there isn't intelligence behind it. In the same way, God has made it plain that He not only exists, but that He reigns over all, and that no one is without excuse in recognizing and giving due honor to the Creator of all things. Not only this, He gave people, quote, rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Not only do you see a standard of profession, like I said, if you continue to meditate on this verse and just this verse alone, this is what theologians call common grace. God as creator takes care of all his creation. He gives us life. He gives us the air that we breathe. You might think like, oh, once I become a Christian, then there are all these blessings. Yes, that's absolutely true. Once you join the church, once you're part of the membership, there are these blessings God has in store for you. We talked about that. But think about before you gave your life to Christ. He still was good to you. Think about the grace that he gave you before you even knew how to worship him. He blessed you immensely. That's common grace. But more importantly, the good that he has done, meaning the faithfulness that God has shown us is shown to us by His giving of His Son. That is the most precious gift of all. It is by His stripes that we are healed and we are made whole. If the giving of rains and the seasons are common grace, then the giving of the Son is what we call saving grace. And this gift is so precious. It's so precious. Why? Because this gift cost the giver. And when you meditate on this saving grace, Paul would even exclaim in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so while the world that is dying becomes less and less thankful, we'll find reasons, we'll put in Wikipedia entries that go against history, it becomes less and less thankful. That's the reason why those that are being saved and that are saved understand the necessity of thanksgiving. Because our egos couldn't save us, nor did we deserve to be saved, but God in his Great mercy grants those that repent and believe in his name the gift of his son. So just as the pilgrims experienced on that November in 1621, all of God's people recognize then the need to set aside time, whether it's the fourth Thursday of November or any time before a meal or when the saints gather together, in worship on Sundays. Because whether we look back in our lives or look around in the present or think of the future, God is the one that has set aside time to receive the fullness of time for us to receive the fullness of His joy. Uh, there is a martyr by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was imprisoned in Nazi Germany for one year and four months and 18 days in a Nazi cell. And that Nazi cell measured six feet by nine feet. That's how big this cell or small that cell was. And he was there for that long. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, 
what we should remember as we remember Thanksgiving. And this is what he wrote, quote, you must never doubt that I'm traveling with gratitude and cheerfulness along the road where I'm being led. My past life is brimful of God's goodness and my sins are covered by the forgiving love of Christ crucified. I'm so thankful for the people I have met and I only hope that they never have to grieve about me but that they too will always be certain of and thankful for God's mercy and forgiveness. This Thanksgiving week, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, I do believe we have much to be thankful for. But let's remember who we ought to be thankful to and remember Him in our worship to God. And let's remember, most especially, the inexpressible gift of His Son and our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a time to set aside to remember your good gifts and to remember what a good giver you are. Help us now not only to reflect and meditate on that goodness, but to express this thanksgiving with praise and worship that you duly deserve. Let's take this time to pray. And just as we have learned Let's remember and think back to how God has been faithful to us, has been good to us. And let's express that gratitude in prayer, in your prayers right now. Let's pray.